Uh, also, 2 Kings. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture this morning. Romans chapter 12 is where we'll start. And then we're going to go flip over in a moment to 2 Kings chapter 18 to illustrate something we're going to talk about this morning. Romans chapter 12. Let's start in a moment here just in verse 1. Verses 1 and 2, we'll read those together. And then we're going to really focus our attention today on one little phrase in this passage I really want to think about today. As we think about the sacrifice that Christ made for us at the cross, and in a while we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper, and we'll celebrate that. We also want to remember the sacrifice that he asks us to be a part of each day of our life, okay? So let, let's pray first, then we're going to read that scripture, and then kind of work our way through this thought. Father, we're grateful today for your word, because it's your word, Lord, that helps us to understand the way you want us to live. Lord, it's in your word that you bring conviction to the sinfulness of our life, and you help us to see our need to be submissive to you. Lord, it's in your word, then, that you uh, strengthen us and restore us when we come to you in confession. It's in your word, Lord, that you correct our steps and you help us to walk the right way. Father, it's in your word that you make us steady and sure. You give us a foundation to build our life on. And, Father, it's by your word that you're coming again to redeem us to yourself. So today we're grateful for this time to study and to let you speak to us loud and clear. Help us to have ears to hear what you'd want to say to your people. It's in Jesus' name you pray. Amen. Now, there's a phrase here in uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that I don't want to ignore. As a matter of fact, I want us to focus firmly on it. So let's read these two verses together, and then we're going to walk uh, through the thought, okay? Chapter, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writing says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, this is, hopefully is a familiar passage of Scripture to many of you. Now, some of you, maybe you don't know this passage well. You maybe, maybe you've never even heard it before. But I pray that in this, you'll look at one little phrase with me. It's two words. The word living sacrifice. You see that? Two little words in English. Living sacrifice. Now, I want you to think for a minute about that. Isn't that impossible? Living sacrifice. That sounds so impossible. Matter of fact, this isn't the only time in English language where we think about an impossibility in two words. We've got a, an expression, if you remember back to your high school English class, did y'all talk about something called an oxymoron? Now that's not me, I'm not the oxymoron, even though in some ways uh, my wife probably wonders about that sometimes. But an oxymoron is where you have two words that seem totally contradictory to the, each other, but they're connected together. Literally, they're, they're side by side in the sentence, but together they make one thought, one idea, that by themselves, those two words are opposites. They're contradictory. But together, they make a complete thought that makes a real truth come to life. And, and I want you to think about this phrase, living sacrifice. What does that mean? Because if you think about it, it's kind of like jumbo shrimp. That doesn't make sense, right? Now, it makes sense on your plate, don't it? It might make sense in your belly. But think about those two words. That's another example in English of an oxymoron, right? Jumbo, large, shrimp, something small. 
But together, we know what jumbo shrimp are. Praise the Lord. Amen. Especially fried, dried, and crucified, right? Woo, boy. You like them jumbo shrimp. But, but think again. Go back to this thought. What in the world could it mean for someone to be living and at the same time sacrifice? Because we know what the word sacrifice means, especially when you're studying the Scriptures. In the Old Testament in particular, the word sacrifice meant death. It meant to give something over to death. Like, for instance, when you go back and you read the story of, of in Genesis chapter 22, where God told a man named Abraham to take his only son Isaac and to sacrifice him to the Lord. And when we read that story, we're gripped completely in the moment with the fact that he was giving his son over to death. Someone who was living and alive and full of life was going to be given over to death. And so when the Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament that we're to be a living sacrifice, that, almost, that just doesn't make sense. It, when you really think about those two words, how can I, if I'm living, give my life over to death and still be alive? That just that doesn't make good, good sense in some ways. How can a sacrifice be alive? How can a living person give up their life and still remain more alive than they've ever been? And so for a Jew like Paul, this made perfect sense. Let's think about how this, this could be true. Uh, in the Old Testament, as I said a moment ago, the idea of a sacrifice was something you gave over to God. It was something that was completely given over to Him. And since the earliest days of human history, this was something that they've been quite familiar with. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the book of Genesis and we read the very beginnings of human history, God gave the example of a sacrifice first to Adam and Eve. If you remember the story, they had come to a point where they made a willful decision to rebel against God. And in rebelling against God and sing against God, they broke fellowship with God. They lost that close fellowship, the glory of an intimate relationship with God. And when that break took place, God knew the only way to restore what had been lost was if a, an innocent life was given for the lives of these two sinful people. And so you remember what the Lord did, if you know the story, in Genesis chapter 3, God took some animal. We don't know if it was a sheep or a lamb or what it was, but he took some animal. And the Bible says he sacrificed that life. God took the life of that animal. He took the skins, the fur coat, off of that animal, and from that he created clothing that he gave to Adam and Eve to cover the shame of their sin. And so he wanted this to be a very visual symbol for them. He wanted them to be even something they could touch, you know, the clothing, to remind them constantly, the only way for you to be right with me is if a life is given for your life. And that imagery was carried on throughout the Old Testament. Year after year after year, the Jews practiced animal sacrifice. You and I look at that today and we go, that's so weird. Why were they killing animals and giving them over to God? That didn't even make sense. Well, it made perfect sense when Jesus showed up because what God had been doing for all those years since Adam and Eve, since the time of Abraham, when they would sacrifice an animal to God, what it was picturing was this. An innocent life had to be given for my life. An innocent life that was sinless, shameless, had to be given for my life that was sinful and rebellious. And so by the time you get to the Jordan River in the New Testament, 
where John the Baptist, clothed in what? Animal skins. No coincidence there. Stood on the bank of the river and was proclaiming, repent and turn over your life to God. As he's saying, turn away from sins, turn back to God, and be prepared because the king is coming. And he was preaching this type message over and over. And it was no coincidence then that when Jesus walked down to the Jordan River, the first thing out of John's mouth then was he pointed and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you see, for hundreds of years, God was using sacrifice to prepare their minds, to prepare their hearts, to prepare everything about them to be accepting of the fact that God was about to do something that otherwise would have been disgusting to think about. God was going to take his son, his only son, and he was going to sacrifice him for our sin. Now, in order to make that happen and make people ready to believe that and receive that, it took years and years of preparing their hearts. And so that's why he had them years and years to, to sacrifice those animals over and over again. And it's amazing then today when you and I look at our life and we realize that Christ was that lamb who was slain for us, that you and I, we don't deserve that kind of love and grace and mercy. We really don't. We don't deserve for God to give his only son, to give himself, literally, in his son to us, to die in our place. We don't deserve that kind of grace and that kind of love, but, but God did that very thing for us. The writer of Hebrews helps us to kind of think more about it. Look at this scripture, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26. But now, once at the end of the ages, he, that's Jesus, Jesus has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus truly is that lamb who sacrifices himself for us. Then in chapter 10, he said this, But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose on the third day, and he ascended then to heaven to sit down at the right hand of the Father. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Who are the enemies of Jesus? Who are the enemies of the kingdom? The devil, the flesh, sin, hell, the world system that's rebellious against God. All that's got to be put down, he says. And then he says this, look at this. For by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Look at that last phrase. Well, who's he talking about right there? Who are these people who are being sanctified? What in the world does sanctified mean? Sanctified simply means this. We're being set apart. Set apart from what? Well, set apart from sin. Set apart from selfishness. Uh, set apart from selfish desires and self-centeredness. Set apart from uh, things that are, are, are meaningless and, and temporary that won't last forever. He's saying, in this last little phrase in particular, the writer of Hebrews is helping us understand Jesus is the perfect sacrifice to make the way that you and I can be made right with a holy God. We can be restored to a right relationship that was lost years ago because of the sinfulness of mankind. And so sacrifice is important, right? Jesus had to become the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Here's the question today. How in the world can you and I become now a living sacrifice? That's what Paul said. We just read it. 
God wants us to now be a living sacrifice to him. He doesn't want us killing animals anymore and bringing them to the altar. We don't have to do that anymore. That's over with. We don't have to crucify Christ. That happened one time for all sin. He doesn't have to be crucified afresh, as the writer of Hebrews will say in another place. That's over with. One time, one time deal. Now what does God want? He wants you and he wants me. He wants us. He wants us to lay our lives every day on his altar and say, Lord, I belong to you. Lord, I'm going to live for you. Lord, I want to be a living sacrifice. I want you to have control of my life, and I want you to do with me what you want to do. I want you to accomplish some great things through me. I I just want to be faithful to what you have for me to do. So that's really what we're talking about. That's what we're looking at. We're being set apart every day as a living illustration of a life that is changed because we've come to the place where we know we have to die to our sin, die to selfishness and superficial desires. Those things aren't important. And instead, we have to become that living sacrifice, the person who's been made alive because of his death, because of what he did for us. So later, when we observe the Lord's Supper together here in a little bit, what we're going to be doing is a a living illustration. It's a picture of what Jesus did for us. The bread symbolizes his body, uh, his flesh that literally was pierced and torn and broken for our sin. Uh, The the juice we'll have will be a picture of of his blood that was shed on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to wash away our sin. And so this celebration of the Lord's Supper is important. It's a symbol of what God wants us to do every day in our life, to become a living sacrifice, ready to let the Lord use us however he sees fit to do. Well, I want to illustrate it one, one, one way before we uh, actually move toward the Lord's Supper. Look at this with second, in Second Kings, if you would. I told you if you would to be ready to go to the Old Testament for a moment. So let's look, just for the next few minutes, in 2 Kings. And I want to use three kings. Y'all remember the old song we sing sometimes at Christmas, We Three Kings? (laughs) All right, we're going to look at these three different kings. And two of them were good kings of Judah. And by the way, good kings were hard to come by in the later period of Israel and Judah, okay? And so two of the men we'll look at were, in fact, good kings. The first one and the third one we'll look at. There was one in the middle of these two who was not a good king at all. He was, as a matter of fact, he was a terrible king, a bad king, and we'll, we'll, we'll see why. But let's just quickly look at, I'm going to highlight their three lives. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them, but I want them to serve as illustrations for us. What's it like when we live a life that truly is that of a living sacrifice? The first guy I want to talk about is a guy named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was really one of the greatest kings outside of David, this guy was one of the greatest kings ever, ever that Israel ever had. As a matter of fact, the, the Bible says that about him. The scriptures tell us that there was no king like him before him, and there really was no king like him after him. He was kind of in a, a category of his own. He was a man who saw how important sacrifice was so much that Hezekiah sacrificed anything that kept him from following the Lord. And that's really what we learned from this guy most of all. Look at uh, uh, 2 Kings Chapter 18, let's read verse 3 down through verse 6. The scripture tells us this about Hezekiah. It says, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Now, David was not his biological father. David was his father in the way of life. Okay, David had lived many, many years before. He was a great, 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 great grandfather kind of a figure. But what the Bible means there is he was a lot like David. 
He did a lot like David. He had a heart like David. Verse 4, he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars. He cut down the wooden image. Now, these things the Bible's talking about were, were idols. In other words, he got rid of all the idols that were in the land. He even tore up the places where people went to worship idols. They were called high places, all right? Then notice this. He broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. So this guy is a great example of a man who recognized that there are some things in life that I need to get rid of, okay? And some things were bad things. He saw the high places as, a, as a being a bad thing. The high places were just on these high hills around the city of Jerusalem. People would go out, and they would sacrifice to idols at these places. And so he said, no, we're not doing that anymore. And he, he made that illegal, and he tore those places up and tore them down. He also cut down some of the, they had like these totem poles, an Asherah pole they called it, where they would go and worship Baal, these pagan gods. And he said, we're getting rid of that too. So he saw there were some idols that we need to get rid of. But he also saw something that wasn't necessarily an evil thing. It was a good thing that had become an idol. Look at this. He saw in there in the temple was this uh, emblem they still had left over from the time of Moses. Y'all remember the story in Numbers chapter 21 of when God had Moses create a bronze serpent on a pole? If you remember the story, the children of Israel had been rebellious against God, and they had been sinning against God and complaining against God. And so God sent fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, into their midst to uh, bite them. And people were literally getting sick and dying. And so Moses cried out to God. God said, tell you what you do. Take a, 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 some bronze, create a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, stick it up in the air. Tell everyone who trusts me and believes in me to look to that serpent. And if they look to that serpent trusting and believing that I'll heal them, then I'll heal them. And sure enough, that's what happened. Well... But through the years, it was just an emblem. It was a symbol. It was something that helped to remind them that God wanted to heal them and wanted to help them. But through the years, they lost sight of what it meant, and they started worshiping it. Now, that doesn't ever happen in our lives, right? Sometimes we have good things that were meant to remind us of what God had done, and we forget that God had done something great for us, and we start worshiping the things that God's given us. Sometimes God blesses us and gives us things that we instead, instead of thanking God for them, we start worshiping those things more than God who gave it. And so here's a guy named Hezekiah who realized that can't be. We can't have that. And he was willing to get rid of something that was keeping the people from following after the Lord. So that, that, that's an example of what it means to be a living sacrifice. There are some things you may have to sacrifice, have to remove from your life because they're keeping you from following the Lord with all your heart, from really living for Him. And so we have to be willing to do that. That's a part of making sure that I am faithfully living out my life, a sacrificial type of life, really following the Lord. And so God responded to the honesty of this man's heart. Look at this in chapter 20. Look at chapter 20. Uh, we're flashing forward in the story a little bit. In chapter 19, King Hezekiah has a threat that comes against his, his country, against Judah and Jerusalem, in the form of a guy named Sennacherib. He was an Assyrian general. And the Assyrians said they were going to come in and conquer the land and conquer Jerusalem. 
And Hezekiah in chapter 19 prays to the Lord about it. He says, Lord, you know I, I want to do what's right. Lord, you know I want to live for you. Lord, you know we don't want to be conquered by these people. Lord, would you please save us? And so God had determined that he would punish the people's rebelliousness, but he would temporarily save them because of the faithfulness of this man, Hezekiah. So look at chapter 20 in verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Since your house, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Well, that ought to get your attention, right? When the prophet wakes, walks in your house and says, This is it. You've come to the end of the line. Get your house in order. You know, make your final arrangements. Get your burial plan together. You know, that's what he's telling him. Then verse 2, then he turned his face toward the wall and he prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him. And, and the Lord told Isaiah, Go back in there and tell him that I've heard his prayer, I've heard his cry, and I'm going to spare his life, and I'm going to give him 15 more years. And the Lord did that. He gave him, this man, 15 more years. He was set... To, to be off the earth. But because of his faithfulness to the Lord, because of his heart, of his attitude of humility before the Lord, the Lord, in his honesty and humility, gave him more time. Now, it's a, it's a, a really beautiful picture, then, of what God desires for us. He wants us to be people who don't allow anything to keep us from honestly and faithfully following the Lord. But there, there's another thing we need to learn, another uh, illustration to pull from. So let's look at the next king for a minute. The next king we're going to look at was a guy named Manasseh. He was Hezekiah's son. And, you know, you'd think, well, if Hezekiah was such a great king and such a good dad, surely Manasseh did the same thing. He was just like his daddy, right? Well, this is one of those nuts that fell a little too far from the tree, okay? And uh, he did not follow after his father. The Bible tells us, as a matter of fact, that he did the opposite thing. Verse 2, chapter 21, verse 2, Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations the Lord had cast out before them. So in other words, not only did he do bad, he did worse than anyone had ever done before. This guy was so far from where he was supposed to be, so far from God. And so Manasseh, and if you continue to read his story, and in verses 1 through 9, you, you can get pretty well get the whole picture from his life story here. He literally sacrificed nothing to the Lord. He didn't care about what God said, and he kept everything for himself, and guess what? It cost him everything. He sacrificed nothing, and it ended up costing him everything. Matter of fact, if you read through his story, he, uh, in verses 1 through 5, he sacrificed his faith and the faith of the nation. He rebuilt the high places. He rebuilt the idols. He rebuilt the worship of Baal and Asherah and all those things. He did the opposite of what Hezekiah had done. In, chapter, in verse 6, rather, he even sacrificed his own family. He took some of his sons, and he literally, literally killed them, burned them to death, and sacrificed them in the flames to a god named Molech, a god, Canaanite god. You, you can keep reading in verses 7 through 9. You read about how he sacrificed uh, the future of the nation. He led the people away from following God and away from pursuing the right way to live for the Lord. So this guy, he sacrificed everything that God had given Hezekiah. This guy threw it away. He threw it away because he wanted things his way rather than God's way. And so we learn an important lesson from, from even here. Even, even in a bad illustration, you can learn a good lesson. And here it is, that we need to remember that if we're willing to give God nothing, 
we'll lose everything. If you give God nothing, you're going to lose everything in the end. And so that's kind of the story of this fellow's life. Well, there's one last king, okay? So let's look at him. We're going we're to actually have to skip a king. If you look at chapter 21, verse 19, you read about Manasseh's son, Amon. And he, he's not on the pages of Scripture very long. We don't know a lot about him, but he did just like Manasseh. He was, he was a wicked, evil king. But when you get to chapter 22, verse 1, here's another fellow who's good. His name was Josiah. Read this with me, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Wow. Can you imagine handing the keys to the kingdom to an eight-year-old and saying, drive this baby, you know? Woo, boy, howdy. Well, he had good people around him. He had a good mother and good other, I'm sure, people who helped him walk with the Lord. So look at verse 2. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father, David. Wait a minute. I thought his, his daddy was Amon. His biological father was Amon, but his real daddy, the man he patterned his life after, was David. So what does that tell you? It tells you this. No matter where you're born and who your people are, you don't have to follow the footsteps of, of bad people. You can live a good life. You can live a right life, but it's a choice that you make. And that's, that's, that's what was happening here. He was choosing to follow after the pattern he heard about King David, who was an ancestor long ago. And the one that Hezekiah also modeled his life after. So he, he, he had a good model. All right, keep reading with me, verse 2. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So in other words, he walked a straight line. Just like old Johnny Cash, baby, he walked the line. He hung right in there. He, he knew what God wanted him to do, and he did it. He didn't make excuses for getting selfish and getting, getting sinful. He didn't do that. He tried to walk the line and do exactly what the Lord wanted him to do. So he, uh, he wasn't sinless, no one's sinless, but he tried to be blameless in the way that he lived. So when the, when the Lord spoke to him about his own sin, he was ready to, to, to deal with it the right way. Uh, if you read the story in verses 3 through verse 10, when he grew a little bit older, one day he had the temple cleaned up. They were trying to clean up the church house, the, the house of the Lord. And as they were cleaning, they found a book. Listen to this. They find a book, and they bring it to him and say, We found this book, boss, and you're not going to believe what it says. He says, What is it? He says, it's, it's God's Word. He said, Wait a minute. God's Word? Read it to me. What do you mean, God's Word? I want to hear what this says. And they begin to read this book, and many people believe it was probably the book of Deuteronomy. And as they began to read this book that they found buried in all the debris of the, of the temple, he becomes heavily convicted. Look at this in verse 11. It happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. The king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahakim the son of Shaphan, Echor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go and inquire of the Lord for me. For the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. He realized this book is about us. This book is written about words concerning us. This is, this is about God's people, and we've not been following it. We've been rebellious, and we've been just like the rest of the world. We've been following after idols, and we have not been doing the things God wants us to do, and we're ready to get, get our life back on track and be right with God. Now, this is coming from a man who wanted to walk the line. <laughs> 
Think about that. He didn't turn to the right or to the left either way. He wanted to walk the line, and even he saw that he was still a sinful man, and he needed to repent of even small, unconfessed sin in his life that seemed so insignificant, but in the end was an affront to a holy God, and he was gripped by that, and he was convicted heavily. And so he says, we have got to get our lives on track. And so when you, you read about this, go to verse 16 and verse 17. Look what the Lord said about his attitude. Verse 16 the Lord said, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. In other words, God's saying, I'm not going to ignore sin. God does not ignore sin. He said, Consequences are coming for sin. He says, Verse 17, Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall be quenched. But, look at verse 18, But... As for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you've heard, look at this in verse 19, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and you wept before me, I also have heard you says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I shall bring on this place. What's the Lord telling him? He's saying, I'm going to give you a good life and a full life, and you have the promise of eternal peace. So Josiah was willing to sacrifice everything to the Lord. He gave everything to the Lord. He walked the line. He said, Lord, I belong to you. I'm going to be your servant. Lord, I'm going to follow after you. I'm not going to let any sin take over my life and my heart. I want to be completely committed in every way and everything to you. And he did that, and guess what God gave him? Eternal peace. You know, there's, there's something to be said for having peace in your heart and peace in your mind, peace in your spirit. You know, to know that you're not fighting against God, but you're walking with God. And you, you've, quit, you've quit trying to fulfill all your own selfish desires, but Lord, you've let the Lord take over your life. And you've let the Lord come in and clean you up. And you've let the Lord give you a hope and a future. There's something to be said for the peace that comes when you know that you've done that with the Lord. And that's what he had. He, had, he could hold on to that and he could cling to that. He had the promise of salvation the Lord had given to him. And just like Josiah, God wants us to experience that in our lives too. He wants us to remember that the greatest sacrifice we'll ever make is when we sacrifice ourselves to the Lord when we become a living sacrifice and we give ourselves over to him and we say, Lord, I just want to walk the line and I just want to walk with you and I want you to have everything in my life and be in charge of, of me. And so when we do that, when we sacrifice ourselves in that way and we live our life for the Lord, that's when real peace comes. Now there's one last passage of scripture that I want to point us toward before we prepare for the Lord's Supper and it's in Psalm 51. There are three verses I want us to read together, and here's the first one on the screen. In these verses in Psalm 51, David, remember, remember both these good kings we read about? There was one guy they patterned their life after. It was David. Both Hezekiah and Josiah saw something in David that they, too, wanted to live out. You know what it was? I really believe it was this right here. I believe they understood the heart of David, that he had a heart for God, and he was a man after God's own heart. And so I think their cry was just like David's. Look at this. He said, Behold, you desire truth 
in the inward parts and in the hidden part, you make me to know wisdom. The first thing David knew was this, God, you want me to have integrity. You want me to have integrity in my life. You want me to have truth in here and in here. To know the truth and then to live by the truth. That's what he's saying right here. Truth in the inward parts, in my mind, in my heart, in my life. And then, then, then not only integrity, but in, later on in verse 10, he recognized God wants us to have purity. He said, Lord, I want you to create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Lord, I don't want to wander away. I want to, like, like Josiah, I want to walk with straight in the narrow. Lord, I want to walk right behind you. And I want you to give me a clean heart so I can stay in there. Be steadfast in my walk, in my spirit. And the last thing I, I, you notice is in verse 17. In Psalm 51, 17, he says, The sacrifices of God are what? To kill animals? No. The sacrifices of God are to uh, give over our children? No. The sacrifices of God are to bring our tithe to the, to the storehouse? No. That's important, but that's not it. You know what the real sacrifices of God, he says, are? A broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. What does he mean? Surrender. Give the Lord your life. Don't, don't try to hang on to sin. Don't try to hang on to selfishness. Give him your life. Be a living sacrifice. The sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Contrite means humble, an humble heart. These God will not despise. He's not going to despise you. God's not going to turn you away if you come and give your life to him. God's not going to humiliate you. God's not going to make fun of you. God's going to do the opposite. He's going to take you in. He's going to love you. He's going to hold you. He's going to build you up and strengthen you. He's going to make you fit to follow him every day of your life. But it begins when you become a living sacrifice. When you put yourself out there on that altar and say, Lord, I belong to you. Everything, everything is going to be yours. And so that's where it begins today. I pray that right now we could just take a minute to pray together. Would you join me in prayer in the next few moments? Let's ask God to make us a living sacrifice. We're going to have a time this morning to uh, make sure that our hearts are right and ready before we ever enter in to the time of the Lord's Supper. Father, right now as we come to this moment, we pray, God, that you'd help us to see that we need to be a sacrifice, a holy sacrifice before you today. And Lord, there may be someone here in this place whose life is not right with you because they've been trying to hold on and hold out and do things your way. Maybe there are others of us today, Lord, who, who know in our own lives we have sin, we have things that need to be removed. We need to be right with you, Lord. We need to remove anything that's keeping us from following you. And so right now, God, would you help us to confess our sin. Lord, to pour our hearts out to you in the moment and be surrendered to you. As you sit here in the pew today, maybe you need to take a moment to pray silently before the Lord. Maybe he's leading you to do that very thing. I'm going to ask Caleb to, to lead us in just a moment in, in singing a song. But as we sing the song, I want us to remember this. The song we're going to sing today is, is a call to come to the Lord, to return your heart over to him. And So in just a moment, we'll stand and we'll sing this song together. And as we do, if there's someone today who wants to come and give their life to the Lord, you're ready to follow him. As we sing in a moment, I want you to take that step of faith and you come and talk with me about giving your life to the Lord. But if there's others who just want to take some time to pray and confess some sin that's been keeping them from the Lord, you do that too. Lord, would you move in our midst today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.